Overlooking Phoenix. From high above in the Star Worldwide Network Studios. Badge Boys. Stories, insight, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. Welcome back to another edition of the Badge Boys, the show where two retired cops talk to the community. I'm retired Crime Stopper Sergeant Darren Birch. I'm retired Phoenix Police Officer Jason Schechterly. And I know I say it every week, Jason, but we have another great, great guest. Yes, um, I had the honor, privilege, uh, humbled to share the stage with Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman about a month ago. Yes. Uh, I was kind of like the warm-up band. Uh, you know, you had the, you know, the, the main attraction you're there seeing. You just put up with the warm-up band, You mean the right? night you got the Congressional Medal Award? Okay. That, that, got, that, that was your warm-up? I was, he, he always says that. He, it, pretty soon it's going to become the Medal of You are valor. so ridiculously <laughs> humble. It was simply it's, recognizing me. It was all it was. It, all it was. It said congressional somewhere on it. So <laughs> I'm just saying, quit being so humble. You're not the warm-up act. But I, I, get, I get what you're saying. Thank it was a, you. It was thank a pretty you. good night. So as I I'm, I'm get to see, not just hear Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, but meet him. And what a great guy. Truly, mm. truly, genuine. Well, genuine. Yeah, so we're talking. Best. And he introduces me to Mike Baldwin, his go-to guy, if you will. And I, I wouldn't even know that he'll tell me what his actual title is. But he was a retired uh, sergeant out of surprise. And so I'm talking to him, and I'm learning he's been in the shit. He's seen a lot of things. He's experienced. He was, you know, their main go-to guy for interviews. Uh, he's been uh, received numerous awards uh, to include praise from the Department of Justice for his work with DEA in investigating rogue doctors and pharmaceutical companies. Nice. And I thought, we need to have you on our show, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've already had your boss, right. <laughs> Colonel uh, yes. Dave Grossman, yes. which we're going to have him again, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but we need to bring on Mike. And so without further ado, I want to introduce Mike Baldwin, retired 20 years with the Surprise PD. He's obviously worked patrol, but a field training officer, SWAT, lead detective in major felons, uh, the major felon unit, excuse me. Uh, Mike, welcome to Badge Boys. Hey, Darren and Jason, thank you. It's happy. Uh, it's good for me to be with you today. Uh, you know, the first question always goes to Jason as it deals with the heart of law enforcement. Yeah, something very near and dear to my heart. And I'm going to take you back a few years. But uh, just very simply, why did you put your name on the application to begin with? Well, uh, Jason, it's a uh, Kind of a unique story. I graduated uh, high school, became a high school teacher and coach, and I did not want to uh, be a police officer. I had no desire. And a few years into coaching high school basketball, uh, one of my players told me, hey, coach, I'm testing for Phoenix PD. And I said, hey, that'd be great. And he said, you should test. You'd be a good cop. And uh, I said, no, I don't think you get paid enough to get shot at and so forth. <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, Smart kid. <laughs> And, and I don't think my wife would like that. And then uh, she came home and I told my wife, Tracy, and she said, yeah, you'd be a great cop. And so the rest is history. I went down and tested and uh, went through the academy with Chandler Police Department um, and graduated from the Phoenix Regional Academy toward the top of my class. And then ultimately I lateraled to a uh, surprise because I lived in the West Valley and I spent 20 plus years out there. Which, uh, which Aaliyah class were you at? Uh, 351. All right, I was 333. Uh, you know what? That unique story is pretty awesome that a for someone young 
to see that in you. That's that's I haven't heard that before. Yeah, that's, yeah, you used to I see it the other way. That's, away. that's, that's pretty. Way around. That's pretty stellar. The, that somebody saw that in you. So awesome. So tell us about your career. Was it what you expected? Uh, did you? Was there one detail you liked more than others? Talk about your career a little bit. Yeah. So my uh, police career. Um, I lived in a very strict uh, conservative home. I hadn't seen a lot of things. Uh, bad things until I got to be a police officer. And then I got to see how a lot of the world lives. And I saw drugs for the first time. And ironically, I mean, I hate to say it, I got intrigued uh, by drugs, um, meaning the destruction that they do to people and just that game of cat and mouse between the police and the guys that are selling drugs, the drug users, and so I began to develop my niche, my niche uh, early on, and um, I enjoyed drug investigations. And you also worked SWAT. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so in a small agency, um, a lot of guys get the opportunity uh, to work SWAT. So I went through the Mesa SWAT school, and um, a couple Phoenix guys were in there as well, and back then when I was on SWAT, it was, everything was dynamic entry. There was no surrounding call out like there is today. We didn't have all the robots and all the drone technology, the thing, <laughs> things of that nature. And so I was a point man. Um, and so I was the first one through the door every single time. And, you know, looking back at it now, you're like, I had to have some guardian angels uh, looking out for me because you're entering the fatal funnel. Uh, the bad guy knows where you're going and you didn't have all the tools um, that you have today. So today is more uh, surround and call out. They port the windows, they gas the place, they send in the robots, they send the dog, they send the drone. And when everything's code four, then they start methodically uh, searching room to room. So Totally different. Yeah, I love the idea of uh, working smarter, not harder. Yeah. And it's taken me age 60 to kind of get that. <laughs> <laughs> not, not the 30 years while you're on. Exactly. I'm it, always it, running in. Now, I'd love to talk to you about a, a topic that we've not discussed on Badge Boys, rogue doctors, pharmaceutical companies, the crimes. We talk about the, the back end of folks that end up, you know, addicted to oxycodone, end up doing a... Uh, these robberies out of the blue. We, I always used to joke that no one just wakes up one day and becomes a criminal. I've Since doing this show, since some of my investigations, I've met people that in a, in absolutely addicted to oxycodone, some of the um, you know heroin-based products out there, and then literally seeing how easy it is to do a uh, pharmaceutical robbery and overnight become major criminals and uh, ruin their lives. But I love the idea of investigating on the front end in terms of how, are the, how is this product getting out on the streets, um, you know, the pharmaceutical companies, and you worked with the DA in a task force. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so that was a four-year stint in my career where I worked uh, out of the Phoenix division of the DEA, and I worked on the tactical diversion squad. And so when I first signed up, the only word I heard was tactical. And I'm like, oh, this is great. This is just going to be an extension of, you know, my SWAT experience. Um, little did I know, um, tactical was just a teaser in the name. Uh, <laughs> it these, inve these investigations uh, are long and DEA doesn't do anything fast. They stretch these investigations out for months and 
things that we could solve, you know, at the local police level, Phoenix PD, you know, would solve this case within two weeks, um, gets turned into a 10 month investigation a year, you name it, because it's a conspiracy quite often, and it involves uh, multiple states and so forth. So um, I'll give you uh, one particular example. I took a case down with me to the DEA. We had a uh, a suicide um, in surprise where a nurse practitioner um, blew his head off with a shotgun and left behind very meticulous notes outlining why he killed himself and he could no longer live with the guilt of being part of a pill mill. And he said he worked at a doctor's office in North Phoenix that gave out uh, oxycodone like candy. And so I said, hey, can I start with this investigation? And they said, yeah, sure. And this was a new thing for the DEA in general, these uh, tactical diversion squads. And I know as a street officer, um, when we would arrest somebody with a dime bag of weed or, you know, a a little bit of methamphetamine. um, But I thought, you know what, if these doctors are delivering these drugs and hiding behind a lab coat, after they took a Hippocratic oath that they would do no harm, then I'm going after them full bore because they know better and it's strictly uh, for money. And sure enough, that's what it was all about. Um, I started investigating uh, a pain management company uh, in North Phoenix, just in a strip mall. And I was shocked just by doing surveillance that when they started opening when they opened up in the morning, there was already a line out the door of patients, um, basically drug drug seekers. And I soon learned through surveillance, through interviewing people um, that this doctor uh, was giving people 180 to 240 oxy 30s a month. And then requiring them to go to the pharmacy that was right next door. And so he was in bed with the pharmacy right next door. He couldn't, he didn't let people go to Walgreens or CVS or anything like that. They had to go to his specific pharmacy and therein started the development of the conspiracy. At the same time, I would notice all these patients coming in day after day, hundreds and the doctor wasn't in the office and I'm like, how are they walking out with these scripts? And uh, the doctor's wife was signing scripts for controlled substances, schedule two drugs, um, oxycodone, uh, fentanyl, morphine, things of that nature. And the people were walking right next door to the pharmacy, getting them filled. I would see diversion right out in the parking lot. Um, one particular day, I saw a guy with his Hells Angels cuts on. Um, a little girl came out of the uh, pain management. She walked out to the parking lot to him. She handed him uh, the drugs. He gave her some cash and off they went. So um, I could clearly see that these drugs were being diverted. They were uh, not being used for their intended purpose. Long story short, um, I 
did a full-fledged investigation, um, assets, you name it. The doctor was renting a house in Scottsdale at $10,000 a month. He had a couple Hummers. Uh, he had a Bentley um, BMW. His wife had a stable of Arabian horses. And so they were living this high lifestyle, just like a, a cartel member from Mexico. But I think it's worse because he's hiding under a lab coat and we're supposed to trust our doctors. Um, at least that's what we're taught in society. They go to uh, colleges, they get all these special degrees, and yet these drugs were killing people. You, um, you mentioned that it was, uh, it's all about the money, obviously, you know, with the Hummers and the house and, you know, the, the mansion, whatever it is, at $10,000 a month. Uh, how much money are we talking about? When the case was settled, did it go to court? Did they plea out? And what kind of monies did this guy net from that syndicate? So let me tell you, um, uh, the pharmacist was actually making more money than the doctor was. Um, and so we kind of linked them in the conspiracy and mil millions of dollars. Um, and that's no exaggeration. So when it came time for asset forfeiture and seizure, um, at one point I uh, seized several bank accounts. One bank account had 900 and some thousand dollars in it. Um, cash sitting in these homes of these people, um, hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash in a safe. So just like a drug kingpin, I mean, it's the same thing. Um, nothing was in their name. They had uh, post office boxes, um, seven, eight post office boxes. Um, and so they had nothing uh, in their name because they knew that asset forfeiture, you know, would be coming and things would be seized. And so they had it in other people's names. It's very interesting to see how it all worked. Um, but ironically, the difference between them and a drug cartel member, uh, somebody trafficking 500 pounds of weed from Tucson to Phoenix gets pulled over and, you know, we seize it. Um, it's easy prosecution because the, the uh, trafficker doesn't even fight it. They just chalk that up to a loss. Well, the U.S. attorney, um, they bragged about, you know, all those prosecutions. But when it came to one of these doctors, they were scared because these doctors were educated. They had lawyers on retainers. And so there would be a fight. And it was amazing to me um, the disparity in justice. Uh, for a doctor versus just a, a regular trafficker that we're used to. Yeah, I've noticed the feds have an incredible clearance rate in terms of prosecution. It's like 98% because they don't risk anything. You don't have a 98% clearance rate as a prosecutor if you only, you're gonna have that if you only do slam dunks. Mm. Um, I, I'm curious how prevalent is this and that you, Maybe it not be something you can you know hold on to in terms of you know what you you know documentation, but how prevalent is this? How many? How often do you see this? And if you would, the doctor was this his baby, or was there some type of mafia or so or something that kind of you know said, hey, I know how we can make money. Did you ever find out the origin, if you will? Yeah. So in this case, I boiled it down to uh, the doctor's wife. Uh, she was the one running the operation. She was a business manager and she was the one driving this machine. However, um, 
I was also able to work undercover with DEA down in Miami um, for Operation Pill Nation. And I did a six-week stint of undercover buying uh, drugs at doctor's offices in Miami. And what I learned down there is just a regular guy off the street saw an opportunity and he would rent a building and he would hire a doctor. He would buy a doctor. Typically it was an old guy, 75 years old. And he would buy him and say, Hey, all you have to do is write scripts. And so same thing. We'd go into a a pain management doctor down there and you would see license plates from Ohio, Kentucky, all the Appalachian states coming down to Miami. And you're like, this doesn't even make any sense. And then I'm in the waiting room uh, with a hundred other people waiting to get uh, the drug from the doctor. And I'm talking to them. They don't know who I am, but I see three or four guys who are armed inside there. Um, There's an armed security. That's not normal of the doctor's office. And then everybody paid cash. It was $150 um, each person to see the doctor. And then when the doctor walked in, he almost got a standing ovation. People started clapping in the lobby and he's like, let me get my hand ready to write these scripts. And he uh, waddles into a room. This is just one example. And immediately then the chain starts rolling and people get seen. I was in there for two minutes on my first visit and I walked out with 180 oxycodone thirties. And, um, I complained of no pain. Um, he did no test on me, no MRI. Um, you know, Hey, let's start off with something else. A little, uh, you know, exercise, a chiropractor was immediately, um, these drugs. And so that just showed how bad it was. And we did hundreds of doctor's offices, um, during that operation pill nation and several doctors, uh, ended up going to jail, but, the conspiracy was the office managers were a young, you know, 25, 30 something guy. And he saw a way to make tons of money. And um, again, they get caught because they're just, they're a drug user, a, a drug dealer, excuse me. They immediately buy the penthouse. They drive around with the Mercedes and the Cadillac Escalade, draw attention to themselves and have no legitimate way for that money to be shown. Yeah, I, I, one thing I noticed about the feds when I like working with them is that they had laws just of themselves. They had that law where you had to show how where you got the money. You couldn't have money that was unaccounted for. And it was just an easy slam dunk. And of course, also, if you lie to a fed, that's a crime. You know, yeah, they, guess, yeah. they always lie to, us, lie to a city, city cop, cop. Yeah, right, yeah, all the time. Can't lie to a fed. I, I got to ask you, as in that waiting room, those folks that were from all over the place, were those dealers? So if you will, the kingpin is the um, this guy with the doctor, this, this scam. And then they're, if you will, selling to the dealers or was this users and what I, I hate to use the word victim, but these people that are, you know, um, you know, have an addiction or were these all profit people inside? I think it's profit people based on the clapping. It sounds like they're just another part of the, the profit machine. Yes. Yeah, so some were users. Um, so they would go come down say, let's just say from Pennsylvania or Ohio once a month, they would hit seven or eight different pain management places while they were down there immediately drive back overnight. Yeah. They used a few pills themselves and then they would sell them the majority of them. 
so they could leave and go back to their home state with over a thousand pills and do that once a month. And, um, you know, ultimately now we're fighting this drug of fentanyl and it's flooding our streets. That is not coming from doctors primarily in the United States. That's coming from uh, Mexico via China. And um, it, it's a terrible thing because, you know, so many people think a pill is good. It's been tested in a lab and these things have been adulterated so much. And that's why we're having so many overdose deaths. Yeah. And what's so scary about that, I talked to the, I did a speech not too long ago and talked to the special agent in charge of the DEA El Paso division. Mm-hmm. And cause I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm 50 years old. I was a cop and, and I don't even know how to get a hold of fentanyl. So can you explain this to me? And, you know, he, he did a great job of explaining it to me. And what's so scary about it is there are, you know, you have your people, you hear about these overdoses. Uh, it's the leading cause of death right now from 18 to 45. They're estimating between 250 and 300 people are dying every day of, and again, I've said this before, imagine if a freaking plane crashed every day in this country. I'm just glad we people, have a secured border. People, Seriously. Oh, yeah. People would be up in arms, right? But these overdoses, people are like, oh, they're just junkies. or that. No, it, it, sometimes it's kids yeah. just smoking an old-fashioned joint, taking a, a Xanax. They're, they're, Experimental. And, yeah, and I'm not saying that they should be doing that, but I'm saying they're not trying right. to die. And the China and Mexico right now, they're just you know getting out a spray bottle and hosing down their stockpile with, and it doesn't take, I mean, he, he knows better than I do, but it takes a very small amount of fentanyl and you are dead standing up. So almost in a way it's like mass genocide, but they're trying to kill us and they're doing a very, very good job. And how no, are we, how are we going to stop it? Yeah, no, you're right. And it's like, why isn't this a national epidemic? This is killing a generation of Americans. Mm. Um, when I left uh, the police department, most of the, I would, in surprise, um, work in violent crimes. We'd investigate every um, unattended death. We'd investigate certainly all these overdose deaths. And you're walking into these homes. I did three in one particular day, uh, suicides or overdose type things. And, you know, I walk in for the first time meeting this family and they are just torn apart. Because their 18-year-old son, their 25-year-old daughter is upstairs, um, and there's a little piece of foil near them. There's a remnant of a pill and a straw and their cigarette lighter, and they overdosed on fentanyl. They got a hot load of something they didn't know what they were going to get. They weren't trying to kill themselves. They were not suicidal, just like you said, and (laughs) they're gone just like that in a life, a family is now ripped up in turmoil, and this is coming across our borders. I mean, we catch such a small percentage of it, and when we see the numbers, you know, hey, Border Patrol did this, uh, Tucson PD did this, Pinal County sees this many, enough to kill, you know, 100,000 people. Um, why are we not having truly a war on drugs? Um, because it is killing our children. It's killing uh Plenty of young adults. It's terrible. When you bring up working in violent crimes, I did homicide for three years, and you know one of the biggest hindrances to an investigation 
is, especially here in Arizona, it's not up to us, right, to touch the bodies to make determinations. That is the medical examiner. That's what they go to school for all those years for, and they are outstanding in their line of work. But if they write down on their report, you know, there's five banners of death. If they write down accidental, that really, it kind of shuts us down from doing the investigation when we know it might have been accidental as far as the person who is deceased, but it wasn't accidental when you're talking about uh, when a pill is laced with fentanyl, it that's a poisoning, that's a homicide. And how do how do we get the doors opened to where investigators can, you know, expand on that? And that's probably a I, I'm I'm asking for a unicorn to walk in the room right now to to do that. But it, 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 does that make sense? What I'm asking? Yeah, and it's 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 so frustrating because then the the parent of the child will say okay, I want you to look in their phone and I want you to charge the person who gave them, sold them this pill. Yes. And that make that, that makes sense. Um, but then the County attorney will say, no, this person was an adult. They're 20 years old. They sent a text message going, Hey, I need one, bring it over. I got 20 bucks. And, um, so wow. they don't, they don't charge a person with, uh, homicide, but yeah, if I know, that what I'm giving you is poison. Um, is that not a homicide? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, so 100%. again, I mean, if, if, you know, my dad used to say, if something was laced just with, you know, 1% of arsenic, would you uh, intentionally take it ingested? And I'd say no. So these kids, these people that are drug users now with fentanyl, they're playing Russian roulette with their lives. And if you've never used drugs and you've not had that addiction, it's hard for us to go, you know, why don't you just stop? Yeah. It's, it's not that easy. This drug is so powerful. Mm-hmm. It is a de- it is a demon and it is a one-time addictive drug and it gets such a hold on people um, that, yeah, it has to be done um, nationwide. It has to be war yeah. on, on, on this. And we've talked that over the years about war on drugs and we find out it's really not, but I don't know. Uh, we can do things with our military to surgically uh, annihilate the enemy. Sometimes I don't know why we can't do that in these cases too. Because we have politicians and oh, they stop. suck. Anyway, let's talk about something good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, after a three-year career, you, you get frustrated with certain aspects, you know, and having been in homicide, only got five suicides a night we would investigate. And you just, you get to a point amazing, where, yeah. oh, I need to retire. I need to retire. And you, my friend, Mike, retired, and you have a sweet gig. Uh, talk a little bit about why you retired at 20, Um what your feelings were at the time and now this, if you will, reinventing yourself in retirement. Okay, great. Um, yeah. Having seen enough death um, in my life, I started to get to a point where, you know, I'd emptied my tank and I'd given all, all of what I could to this career. I loved working for people and helping victims, but I had poured out my entire tank and I was almost running on empty I went to school and got my master's degree and I started preparing for life outside of police work. And I started sending out applications to all kinds of companies in Arizona that you would recognize. Um, also companies 
in the southeast part of the country, uh, North Carolina, Tennessee, uh, places that I thought I might like to live, and jobs that I was qualified for, investigations, director of security, you name it. And all those uh, were turndowns. They responded to me, thanks, but no thanks. We have somebody else better qualified, whatever. And I began to get discouraged. And I do believe that God has a purpose for my life. And I was just asking him, Lord, help me to do what you want me to do. Um, And please show me because I need to be done here. And I saw a ad on LinkedIn um, and it was from Lieutenant Colonel Grossman. Um, People in the military, people in law enforcement, they know and recognize the name. He's the sheepdog. Um, He's an author. He's a public speaker. Ironically, I had never attended one of his presentations. And to that point, I had never read one of his books, but you're I knew like the, the only one, you know, that <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you were setting a record there. And, and I do know that. And, um, but I knew the name. And so I sent him an email. Uh, he responded with a list of questions. I responded to those. He said, Hey, let's get on a zoom call. Um, we got on a zoom call that same week and, I met him, his wife, and he told me what he's about, what he wants me to do here in his office. And then he said, hey, why don't you get on a plane and fly out here to St. Louis and see it firsthand? So all this was within a week. And by the end of the week, he offered me a job. And um, it was scary because it was in a part of the country that I I wasn't on my wish list, you know, um, where I wanted to go. And the job was different than what I had envisioned. But sometimes the Lord knows, well, not sometimes, he always knows what's best uh, for me. And so I have to uh, trust him by faith. And so this thing has been been great. So I run Colonel Grossman's operations, his business. We rebranded his company to Grossman on Truth. And he's written a book on killing, on combat, on spiritual combat. I said, what you're telling people is truth. So how about Grossman on truth? And uh, he liked it. We designed uh, a logo, a new website. And um, I book presentations. I negotiate contracts with various agencies. He's been in Arizona several times Uh, this past year. uh, He's spoken to... uh, Game and Fish. Um, he's gone to a fundraiser. He's gone down to the Tucson area. Um, we were talking uh, with some Border Patrol about a thing this week um, because they're experiencing so much. Uh, and there's a call there for them. <laughs> yeah, there's, it, this is a call from New York. So somebody's probably trying to get him scheduled. Sorry about that. That's awesome. So, so what, has this been a dream come true? And I do have to talk to you about what a risk. I mean, I can't imagine just relocating with grandkids and everything. Just yeah. all saying, what a what an adventure, but also scary. I bet it, it was scary. And um, again, I've told my kids about an open door. You know, you can pray for an open door, and when God gives it to you, you can stand there and look at it, or you can walk through it. And um, I chose to walk through it. My wife's been a trooper. Um, We sold our home in Arizona. I lived there for uh, 45 years and um, my family was there and moved to a little town in Illinois where the colonel lives. 
bought a house here. It was freezing cold. It's freezing cold right now. Um, (laughs) Totally different, but um, the Lord has blessed me. He's given me opportunities. Um, I'm talking to you guys. Um, I'm getting to share parts of my story with people. I would have never had this opportunity had I not been attached to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. I love that story. I lo- thank you for sharing everything you did in yeah. regards to the doctors and pharmaceutical, because that's, that's an aspect I've never kind of dealt with ever. I, you know, we deal with the after effect, unfortunately, but I really appreciate you talking about uh, Colonel Dave Grossman. Cause I like, again, I had the honor of meeting him in person, just a, just truly a, a humble, intelligent man. And now I know the, 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 uh, the brains behind the brains, if you will. Uh, if there's someone out there listening that wants to get information about, uh, you know, Grossman on truth, uh, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah. So certainly uh, go to our website, uh, grossmanontruth.com. And then there's a list of, uh, book offerings, um, how to schedule presentations. Um, people can talk to me directly at Mike at grossmanontruth.com. I'd be more than happy to uh, schedule a presentation um, for you or see what we can do uh, to help you. And just one more thing. Um, My law enforcement career um, was always about, you know, helping others, uh, serving, trying to have a purpose and a cause. In this role, I'm doing the same thing. We're getting so many emails from people that will send an email to Colonel Grossman and say, I was in the military or I was an officer involved in an officer-involved shooting. Um, My life was turned upside down. I was thinking about killing myself, but I remember something that you've written in your book, um, you know, that you'll never take your life without a fight. And um, you saved my life. And so that has purpose, that has meaning. And so I'm still able to work in a job that has a purpose and meaning and saves lives. So that's invaluable. Yeah. And to just for that point, that event I was at when Colonel Grossman is talking about sleep deprivation and how it's one of the number one causes of, you know, suicide is that sleep deprivation accompanied with alcohol. So yeah, it's, it's truly a life-saving experience hearing him talk. It really can be. Uh, Again, thank you, Mike, for joining us. Uh, Congratulations on a stellar career and a a future with Colonel Dave Grossman. I appreciate it guys. Take care. Be safe. Thank you. And we'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Badge Boys. We'll be back right after this. If you like the Badge Boys, you'll love their books. Starting with Burning Shield, the Jason Schechterly story, which Arizona Diamondbacks president Derek Hall proclaimed, Jason is an inspiration and his story must be read and shared. The professionally written novel is a powerful biography chronicling Jason's gut-wrenching battle to health after being trapped in a fireball that consumed his police car and his high-stakes legal showdown against the Ford Motor Company for their explodingly lethal Crown Victoria police cruisers. Then there's Darren's award-winning Twisted But True book trilogy with close to 100 compelling and funny true crime stories that American detectives with Lieutenant Joe Kenda producer called the perfect blend of humor, heroism, and honor. And retired Colonel Dave Grossman declared, Darren's twisted but true books are hilarious, deep, and powerful. Each book in the series received the Pinnacle Award for the best true crime book, and a story from book two was featured on an ID Channel television show. And Robin's most recent book, Soul Stirrings, 
reviewed as an often humorous and spiritually uplifting story of a widow's soul-searching pilgrimage to the afterlife. Darren called it a love story, a ghost story, an investigative story. It's a story like no other. And Robin's first book, Victim No More, where she shares her harrowing experiences with rape and domestic violence as Robin takes the reader on a very personal journey through the morass of abuse and loss, and ultimately, survival. These Badge Boy books should be on everybody's top 10 reading list. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. Welcome back to Badge Boys, everybody. Uh, Darren, as always, he knocked it out of the park. That was incredibly educational, frustrating, uplifting. It was kind of everything. Mike Baldwin is really something. And I love the fact that here's a guy who's a school teacher and a coach <laughs> and turns out to you know reach some of the highest levels of law enforcement and doing things that, uh, you know, what I care about, leaving the day better than you found it, leaving this world better than you found it, very spiritual guy, and uh, he just, he was awesome to listen to. Um, we're also graced today by somebody I am very fond of, a good friend of mine who is a retired captain from the Oklahoma State Troopers. That would be a hell of a place to be a state trooper. Um, I'm not a big fan of doing stuff alone. I like the big city and like, hey, if I need help, like, Eight people just show up out of the ground. It's pretty cool. When you work in a big city, I've always admired the state troopers because I couldn't do that. And uh, my friend Brad, she- Brad Shepard uh, just flew in and landed and came over here to join us. So we're going to have him sit down on Cop Talk. And Mike and Brad don't realize that Cop Talk is my weekly therapy session. And I usually get a little fired up. But I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what your topics are this week, Darren. So let me hear him. Yeah, you're exactly right. This is your uh, uh, where you get to vent, you get to have your therapy. Well, you uh, usually get me a little because I know what I know your triggers. You know my butt. Yeah, <laughs> yes. you like to push my butt. Yes, I so. do. It's I just, so much fun. I can see something like oh, some great politicians uh, in the news this week. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, always. Yeah, you know this week is funny. Last several weeks, my God, it's like you have to what aren't you going to talk about, right? Because right. there's too many headlines. Yeah. This week wasn't that many, actually. It was kind of interesting. But so, the, so these I got to kind of look at uh, from Fox. Uh, they had a, not so much a headline, but a, um, you know, the, the, the thing they put on the uh, tease, weekend border stats, December 3rd through the 5th. So we're talking two days. And they went ahead and did these line items. Over 14,000 encounters, 25 pounds of fentanyl, 28 pounds of cocaine, 674 pounds of marijuana, 250000 almost $251,000 seized. Three gang members were um, captured. Two sex offenders were captured. One felony warrant. One aggravated assault on a minor. And these are just over a two-day period of the ones they caught coming across the border illegally. Yeah, that not key the gotaways. The ones, yeah, not the, the ones gotaways. that we will never, ever know until, right. yeah. Right. So, yeah, I'd love to hear your take, Brad's take, and Mike's take on the border. And and I think it se- segues beautifully with the fentanyl crisis. And it's, to your point, murder. Well, I think what drives me the craziest is living in a border state. And, I mean, I dealt with it, uh, obviously, 20 years ago in my career, a lot of the homicides were 
from human smuggling. You know, they don't mess around. They charge money to families down in Mexico. Then when they get here, they call the families and they charge a lot more. And if you don't pay, they they aren't just threatening or joking. They kill you right there in some abandoned drop house. And, uh, you know, our solve rate was was not as high as we wanted it to be because we didn't know who half the victims were, let alone trying to find the the rest of them. But the way it stands currently, you know, you have a lot of politicians, a lot of media who don't want to talk about it. They don't want to show it. Then you do have some reporters who are trying to do a good job. And right now, Darren, they're asking the border cross. They're not just giving their opinion. They're asking the border crossers, what are you doing here? And they're going, we have an open border. Now, it, it, if they're saying, talk about hearing it straight from the horse's mouth. I mean, why did you walk for 14 straight days? From, from Venezuela. Yeah, exactly. Why were you willing to put yourself through that to come here? Well, because we have an open border. And usually the people that are giving these interviews are are genuinely looking for a better life and they're they're wanting to come to America and it's it's not the bad guys that are gonna be like, oh hey, I'll the I'll, tell, I'll tell my story and um it's just super frustrating because it you know I I would never be allowed to go to another country and just commit crimes and do the things that are going on right now and we are a free for all and we're suffering in at, at every level. What Mike talked about, the fentanyl is in my opinion, probably the, the biggest problem because I do think that China and Mexico are intentionally trying to kill as many Americans as they can, and they're doing it. And then you have the human trafficking, which is supposed to matter to people, the young girls that are getting sexually trafficked. It's just a complete disaster with no no end in sight. Yeah, you're spot on, and yet we haven't even talked about the terrorist potential. There's a lot of countries that don't like us, and uh, the terrorist isn't, like you said, open border. Brad, I loved your take. Having been in a state so far removed, you would think, from the border, but is it really? Well, first off, gentlemen, thanks for allowing me the opportunity to come in here. I, mean, I work for a nonprofit, a national nonprofit now, so we, we're... Uh, um, intimately aware of kind of acutely aware, maybe is a better word to, to, uh, of what some of the damages, the, just this morning, uh, the U S border patrol lost one down there, uh, on a more personal note, um, the impact it's having on our, on our law enforcement down there is, is enormous. They don't see, uh, the positive effects of, of what they're doing at some point, uh, if you lose sight of your why or you lose sight of your cause, frustration starts to set in and there's suicides happening down there with our Border Patrol agents that is as, is uh, unfathomable and really in and of itself is uh, so startling that we should look at that by itself and say, what in the world is going on down here? They're it's, completely unsupported. You know, I, yeah. I did an interview with a Border Patrol and he was talking about not just the the slaughter that they see in terms of the mass amount of people coming across the the, the the heckling they get the social media ugliness they get from certain folks but also the the, the tragedies they see of of those folks from venezuela uh, and in other places traveling that uh, ungodly long trip the sex crimes and the homicides and just death on the border in fact he one guy was talking about the they they 
climb over the wall in the San Diego area and they fall to their deaths. Uh, and to see that day in, day out. Um, yeah, to your point, uh, Wounded Blue. Well, if you think for a moment, uh, just for the, the, the sake of what, what the absolute pendulum swing of uh, our federal agents down there and state agents, they're protecting the border and actually, uh, in some instances, welcoming people who are wanting to come into this country uh, because that's the very premise behind which this country was was founded. But at the same time, the pendulum swings over here to protecting this country and being handcuffed really on both both ends of the pendulum. And uh, it's, it's you know, obviously I'm far removed being in my formal uh, law enforcement state from Oklahoma, but these are these are friends that I know that are communicating this, and and at a at a very genteel level, it's frustration. At its worst, it's I no longer see the worth or value in my life. I'm going to take it. Yeah, so sad, and 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 it affects every state. I've come almost sure. sarcastically talk about him being from Oklahoma, but fentanyl is reaching everywhere oh, in the United States. Yeah, it's Absolutely. going to Washington, Wisconsin, uh, New York. It's not just the border states. Yeah, it's not, not, no it's not just Texas. No, no not at all. So, uh, so Mike, to you, um, what do you think of these uh, the border crisis? Well, um, obviously, um, first thing is to recognize there is one. Um, <laughs> you know, the, it's a the, good start. Politi- <laughs> the, poli- the politicians will say it's not like they're just walking across and that couldn't be further from the truth. That's a complete lie. Um, they are walking across the border patrol. Their hands are tied. Um, on one hand, they're supposed to enforce certain laws, but then they're, they're not allowed to enforce them. So now you're in a quandary. Well, what do I do? At the same time, as a police officer, you're always living in condition yellow because um, you don't know who's going to hurt you, who is going to kill you. All it takes is one of these uh, traffickers um, who's involved in human trafficking to take a pot shot at a border patrol agent. And so living in that heightened state of code yellow all the time, it does take its toll and then to not have support. So you guys work for Phoenix PD, a huge agency. Um, not every officer knows who the chief of police is, you know, on a first name basis, but you do want to know that the chief of police will support you. Um, your commander will support you. Um, and so on, if you're doing the right thing, these guys don't know that and nor do they have the, um, the confidence that they are being supported. And so that does take a toll. Yeah, these are all three great points. And we didn't even touch on the air marshals being, um, removed from their jobs to help out with the border in logistical manners to feed and give transport to medical facilities and take them away from their jobs. So it's a crisis on so many levels. Uh, Segwaying uh, to a completely different topic. This is a headline, 14 robberies within a one hour period in Chicago. What do you think, Jason? Oh, well, I, it's, there's no repercussions to commit crime right now the fight and especially when you talk about a city like chicago or new york or philadelphia when you have your head prosecutor that is openly saying you know we're knocking everything down to a misdemeanor you could get away with this stuff the the, this thing i don't know darren talking about a robbery did you hear about a few weeks ago with the uh guy in home depot that yeah so he's so sad so he's stealing uh three power washers and on his way out you have an 81 year old guy 
tried to stop him. Well, the guy got knocked down. He never regained consciousness. He just died yesterday. And do you think anybody is going to talk about that? However, flip the script for a second. And let's say that that 81-year-old man somehow was able to stop this shoplifter and injure him. Then all of a sudden, he would have been called horrible names, racist, uh, vigilante. We, We are so upside down right now in that nobody cares about the victims and the the fact that they first of all you have a right to be safe in this country that's been taken away and then when you do become a victim i've talked about before i teach at the academy a class victimology and it's how not to re-victimize and that starts with uh first responders and then it moves on to the detectives the hospital staff the medical examiner clergy you know and of course the court and that is all we are doing right now is re-victimizing victims and we're telling criminals hey uh <laughs> go do your thing probably see you tomorrow it's just a revolving door and yeah 14 robberies in an hour that that doesn't even surprise because chicago mayor uh lightweight light foot yeah oh, what i mean <laughs> she's absolutely the one of the most reprehensible human beings in the country right now they just don't care about law enforcement crime and and safety of our citizens and that is their number one responsibility is the safety of your citizens when you take the oath so that you talk about hot topic you get to be very very upset yeah yeah solid solid uh that victim at the home depot oh a war veteran a war hero yeah Yeah. but nobody's going to talk about him or that he was murdered and and which it is no oh, it, 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 it is it is it is and a murder it's still outstanding it, actually it's a felony murder now because uh the the amount of money involved in the shoplifting and uh the assault that turns into a death that yeah the we have mm-hmm. laws in place to put this guy behind bars forever yeah it, yeah it guarantee what happened brad what do you think about the headlines on chicago you know again week? i'm 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 very passionate to advocate for the law enforcement community itself. And I just, you have to wonder what's happening to these officers uh, when they see stuff like this. And, and, you know, there's, there's things that we talk about now that we didn't know um, back when we were working uh, the road, which is moral injury. Um, You know, these, this is actually happening to our officers out here and uh, some of them know it, some of them don't recognize it, but there's a real moral injury happening, not just now with the individual officers, but with uh, squads and, and, and units and patrols and now agencies where they feel handcuffed and hand hands are tied and they, they don't, they're really failing their community. It's, it's not their fault, right? but right. there's no way to differentiate that in, in uh, encompassing the, you know, the moral injury itself. It hurts your heart. And yeah. then you, then you really start losing this, this, this finite passion uh, of I'm serving my community or really am I, am I, am I serving my community any, anymore? Is, is, is it worth anything? And we're losing officers because of that frustration, sure. because oh of Absolutely. That, that heartache. And from you, Mike, you retired with a little frustration of what you saw on the job. Uh, talk about what you think is going on with the Chicago headlines. Well, this goes to the uh, demonic idea. Uh, let's defund the police. That happened a couple of years ago. And systematically, uh, it's been terrible. Not a good idea whatsoever. And so 
people now are forcing their agendas. You guys have been speaking so passionately about, you know, this, this crime, there's no repercussions and there's not. Um, however, the message that I want to send, what you guys got to still send, what the Colonel sends is evil triumphs when good men do nothing. Mm-hmm. No matter how bad it is, no matter how bad it gets, I took an oath. I will perform the best I can. Yeah. Do I get discouraged? Yes, I do. I do get discouraged, but I'm still going to fight. And so I would encourage each officer, each border patrol agent to stay in the fight. The pendulum is going to swing back. Um, It has to, we cannot continue like this or we will not have a society. And one further thing, when I talked about the doctors killing people, did you hear anybody say, let's defund the doctors? Let's get rid of doctors. No, (laughs) no, there's a, there's a few bad ones out there. So you root them out and they're killing more people just with malpractice and bad ideas and pills than any police officer would do um, throughout the year, but we don't defund doctors. Same thing is true with law enforcement. Yeah. There are a few bad apples. Let's root those guys out. But the majority, the 99%, Darren, what you say are good, hardworking people that want to do the right thing for the right reason. Yeah, all three of you were fantastic. And to your point, Mike, about good people, you know, doing nothing. That's why I love what Brad Shepard, a retired, you know, captain out of Oklahoma City Troopers does with Wounded Blue, what my dear friend Jason does with his lectures going around the world now, having gone across the pond, uh, lecturing, and then what you're doing, Mike, in terms of um, Grossman on Truth and helping him spread the word because that was a wonderful lecture. So thank you all three of you for what you do uh, to that end, trying to stop Amen. evil. And we'll be right back for our stupid suspect, heroic headlines, and Jason's always inspirational closing message. We'll be right back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. During these challenging days, we not only need to remember our many fallen heroes for their ultimate sacrifice, but also honor them so their families know we've not forgotten. And that's what the Arizona Fallen Hero Memorial Riders Organization is all about. Each year, the nonprofit organizes three memorial rides among the beautiful backdrop of North, South, and Central Arizona, with the proceeds going to the 100 Club of Arizona. Learn more about these fun rides and how you can honor all of Arizona's fallen heroes at ArizonaFallenHeroesMemorialRiders.org. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. Welcome back, everybody. That was really a rousing uh, cop talk. I love no Brad good. stepping in because he had an absolute perfect um, segue into this is killing our officers. This you know, is, I got to tell you guys something. Please. This is probably one of the best shows I've ever heard you guys do just because of all the different people involved. The round table of all four of yeah, you talking yeah. about what's going on. Again, I, I produce a couple of shows on addiction and recovery and they're saying the exact same thing you guys are. Yeah. Why aren't we doing something yes. to prevent this? We're yeah. always talking about putting the horse with the cart after the fact. And it's like, you're not talking about it. So this is one of the most informative shows I think you guys have ever done. Bravo. And thank you. And I think it's because we have these heroic individuals. We have Brad, who's doing so much work with the Wounded Blue, which is so needed. Uh, More people, more officers are dying from suicide than in line duty deaths. Jason, with everything you're doing. And and of course, Mike, uh, working with 
Grossman and being on Bad Boys and having a pulpit to talk about these things yeah, exactly. because heroic action is daily. And to that, you have a heroic headline. I do, and I'm very proud to say that it comes out of the great state of Florida, who you always Go. make fun of <laughs> in the stoop. So I, I am proud to be able to honor them. And, you know, here's the, this is just going to be another one of those stories where the officer, yeah, he definitely didn't want to be in this situation, and he would not consider himself a hero. But when you are, you know, when that day comes, and to find out what your fight or flight is all about is pretty impressive. And this comes out of uh, Miami Gardens, Florida, a Miami-Dade police officer. And listen, I'll get to it in a few minutes, but that department is getting hit really hard right now. Uh, he had to be airlifted to Jackson Memorial Hospital after being shot in the face. Meanwhile, a person has been detained in connection with the shooting uh, detained. That's that's kind of a shame. Uh, Miami-Dade fire and rescue units arrived at the scene of the injured officer at a shopping center on Monday afternoon. The officer was inside of a uh, white vehicle, which had a bullet hole in the driver's side windshield. Miami-Dade director Freddie Ramirez said, one of my robbery and intervention detail officers was working surveillance on a carjacking vehicle and the suspect observed the vehicle and walked up behind it in a cowardly fashion, snuck up around the front, put a bullet through the windshield, striking this officer in the face. That officer bravely got on the radio after being shot, got on the radio, put out his location and coordinated resources to respond. Director Ramirez had a strong message for anyone who thinks that they can ambush one of his officers, and that is that I am here to tell you we are not going to stand for that. The officer is only 34 years old, only been on for six years, uh, and he was a school resource officer before joining Miami-Dade. A massive manhunt ensued for the shooter that led officers to the city of Miramar, where the suspect car was spotted, license plate was matched, flagged, and the suspect was taken into custody. Our officer, thank goodness, is doing okay, which, again, amazing after being shot in the face. This, uh, despite authorities saying that it was a point-blank shot to the face. And in a private moment with the officer who was shot, Ramirez said that this 34-year-old told him, quote, I am sorry, sir. I just want to go right back out on the road. Is that not? I love it. He, yeah. I, that just goes to show you, that's what we are made of. Most of our officers out there doing that, did, shot in the face and said he was sorry to his supervisor because he wasn't out there to, you know, doing his job. It's just uh, amazing, a, a, a true hero. And in the last few months, Miami-Dade PD has had three officers shot. One, unfortunately, uh, I think you remember this, Darren, it was uh, not... Not that long ago, the young kid, he was only 23 years old, and I believe it was Friendly Fire. It was, a, it was just a oh, horrible, yeah. horrible yeah. incident. And they've also had two stabbed in the line of duty. So uh, Miami-Dade is obviously a large department. Things are going to happen, but that's a lot in a short period of time, and it's going to affect all their peers, their squads, and their families. So uh, let's not forget about 
uh, them. But um, to this 34-year-old officer shot in the face, uh, man. Yeah, way, yeah. Stud. <laughs> way, way to show up, and, yep. uh, and that is heroic. So with that, I will let you tell me uh, somebody who is – not heroic. <laughs> you know, actually, this is going to be a very unusual stupid suspect story. We're going to go with a heroic uh, mom and a stupid suspect in oh. our next stupid suspect story. Yeah, a Connecticut woman is being hailed, quote, mom of the year, end quote, online after heroically rescuing her daughter from a vicious bandit as the video of her deed has gone viral with over 16 million views on Twitter. It was one of those ring cameras that captured the moment. The mom, Mrs. Logan McInera, said, quote, I heard her screaming and ran to see what was going on. I thought maybe she slammed her hand in the door. I was not expecting to see some monster attacking her. The unprovoked attack occurred last week in the family's home of Ashford, uh, again, Connecticut. Quote, if I didn't have the video, I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly what happened. It all happened so fast, end quote. The daughter, five years old, Riley, was on her front porch ready to walk to the school bus stop. And out of nowhere, she was attacked, causing her to scream. And it was that scream that alerted the mom. Quote, I was, this is a little girl, I was going out to get on the bus, walked outside and was immediately attacked said little Riley, recalling the frightening scene. The shrieking girl tried to kick the vicious animal away, but to no avail. Upon hearing her daughter's screams, the mom ran out and ripped the berserk attacker off her child while holding her daughter in one hand and the attacker with the other, grabbing it by the scruff of the neck. She told her daughter, go inside, get in the house. Riley ran inside as a snarling animal was mauling the mom's arm. The courageous mom warned onlookers to stay away, thinking the attacker might be rabid. After a short scuffle, mom managed to hurl the attacker away, <laughs> yards away. Uh, Riley sustained a few puncture wounds, and they are both okay. Uh, however, they need to get the rabies shot because the attacker was a raccoon. That's right. Animal Control <laughs> Services com- combed the woods. Your stupid suspect <laughs> is a raccoon. Yes. Yeah, a, a true bandit. Yes. You're killing and a heroic awesome. mom. <laughs> it's unclear if the raccoon was suffering from hyperphobia or, as you know, rabies. But, uh, you know, the reason... This raccoon is a stupid suspect. You don't mess with a mama bear. No, you and do that not. You do not. Is our lose. stupid suspect story. We needed something funny like, that, like that, right? That? Yes. <laughs> and now, my favorite spot of our entire show, week after week, Jason's inspirational closing message. Thank you. I. Uh, you know, in my 50 years on this earth, which I wouldn't trade for anything, uh, the years that, that I was born and have lived and what I, what I have seen, uh, there's plenty of things that happen during our lifetime that we, you know, it timestamps us. You know exactly where you were. You can, you can smell the smells. You can hear the sounds of what you were doing at the time. But really, there's two events, in my opinion, that must never be forgotten because they are the ultimate examples of resilience and resilience is not does not mean you are resistant to adversity and tragedy resilience is the ability to overcome your setbacks and your tragedy and you have to have resilience and our country has shown amazing resilience in two very important episodes 
Uh, one happened before I was born, which is why I'm so passionate that we must never forget because I was raised to learn about that. And then we end up with 9-11 and then I turn around and I try to raise my kids in the same way. Like, you, you know what? And we have a lot of kids today in high school who don't even know what September 11th is. And it just slays me. But today, Darren, is December 7th. And lest we forget, December 7th, 1941, the United States Naval Base in Honolulu, Hawaii, was attacked by the Imperial Japanese Air Service, which led to the U.S. involvement in World War II the very next day. It thrust us in. Although the events at Pearl Harbor over 80 years ago, wow, yeah. feel far away, they are close to a lot of the descendants whose fathers did make it home that day. Your bravery and your sacrifice, along with so many others who served during that time, deserve our appreciation and deserve to never be forgotten. Let's not leave their service just to lay on the pages of our history book, but honor their stories, their legacies, let them stay in our hearts and our minds, especially on this day and every day. 2,403 American service men and women were killed on that day. And uh, we ended up getting in that war, and we kicked some pretty solid ass after that because, uh, like you said, you do not uh, – don't wake up the bear. And we did that. But uh, on this day, we are going to honor them. Uh, it's it's a very important thing. I don't care if it's 80 years. I don't care when it's 200 years. Do not ever forget December 7th, 1941 and the sacrifice and what it meant for the freedoms that we live today are because of that. My grandfather fought in World War II. Most of us in this room right now know somebody who fought in those wars, and it's because of them that we have our freedoms. So don't take those for granted. Leave today better than you found it. God bless each and every one of you, and we will see you next week. Batch Boys. Thanks for listening to Batch Boys. <laughs> Stories, insights, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Batch Boys, heard weekly and worldwide on Star Worldwide Networks and all mobile devices. Batch Boys.